This is an ABC podcast. It's 11 o'clock on uh, Saturday night and there's a bit of noise. There are examples where if people are having ongoing parties and things of that nature, then some people might find the need to call the sort of local police. But if it's a general day-to-day sort of generation of noise that's causing frustration, often the first best step might be to have a conversation with the neighbour. Do you have a right to silence? Coming up, the first in our four-part series on neighbour disputes. First, the New South Wales government has announced a lukewarm response to a parliamentary committee report that calls for an overhaul of the state's coronial system. Adjunct Professor Hugh Dillon is a former New South Wales Deputy State Coroner. His research and experience is referred to extensively in the Legislative Council Select Committee report. Professor Dillon says the state government is fumbling a once-in-a-generation opportunity to fix a flawed and outdated system. Hugh Dillon, what is the role of a coroner? The role of the coroner is to investigate and, if possible, prevent deaths which occur in an unexplained or a violent or an unnatural way. And that can include homicides and suicides, but also accidents. And the coroners also investigate deaths in custody and deaths in police operations. So that's that's basically in a nutshell, to provide answers for families but also for the wider community about these kinds of fatal events. Now, the New South Wales Legislative Council Select Committee report made a series of recommendations, many of them to bring the New South Wales coronial system in line with those of other states and territories. What has been the Government of New South Wales' response to those recommendations? As you said in your introduction, Damien, I think they've fumbled a once-in-a-generation chance. They've simply dropped the ball on this, I'm afraid. Now, I think the report contains uh, about 35 recommendations. The government has accepted 15 and simply noted 20 other recommendations. And look, let's focus on the most significant recommendations, which they've noted, um, a recommendation which calls for the creation of an autonomous or special court within the local court framework. How is coronial work currently conducted in New South Wales And how does this contrast from other parts of Australia? In New South Wales, we have a hybrid system where in Sydney you have six full-time specialist coroners who are members of the local court. But in the uh, country and the regions of New South Wales, it's local magistrates and court registrars who who carry the load of coronial work. So around about 47% of reported deaths in New South Wales, reported deaths being deaths reported to coroners, occur in the uh, regions and the country. So it's really a system where New South Wales is the last jurisdiction in Australia, in fact, Australasia, 
where country magistrates and public servants are doing coronial work. And why that's troubling is that while you have specialist coroners in Sydney who also do the deaths in custody and police operations work and some country work in complex cases, a large number of these cases are dealt with by people who have little coronial or, little or no coronial experience or training and quite often they don't know really what they're doing, which is not to blame them, but we have a systemic design flaw, I'm afraid. In contrast, I understand, I think Victoria has something like 14 dedicated coroners uh, as opposed to six in New South Wales. And I think in Victoria, I think there's also one coroner based in each of the regions as well. Well, that's right. And Victoria actually runs the best in my opinion, I've researched this quite deeply, uh, runs the best coronial system in the world. And that's because they recognised more than a, a decade ago that country magistrates simply didn't have the expertise or the time or the resources to do coronial work. And they flipped and they changed it and they realised that if you're going to prevent future deaths, if you're going to provide a, a therapeutic environment for grieving families who are bewildered and confused by these shocking events, that upend their worlds, you need people who really know what they're doing. In New South Wales and the country, we simply don't have that. We do in Sydney, but we don't have it in the country. And so country people are being, are being shortchanged because the New South Wales government is trying to do coronial work on the cheap. Tell me about cases you're aware of which illustrate what you would see as this flaw in the New South Wales system. Well, here are two. A woman underwent a biopsy at Orange Hospital, a, a, a regional hospital. As a result of that biopsy, a blood vessel was punctured and she died as a result of blood loss. That case was investigated by New South Wales Health, as it had to be, but the local coroner or assistant coroner, who was a public servant, made a mistake and that was that he or she thought that this was a death due to natural causes. Now, assistant coroners do not have any lawful authority to deal with cases which are due to unnatural deaths. They can deal with natural deaths but not unnatural deaths. This was clearly an unnatural death and yet that person wrote off this case without investigating, without consulting the family because the victim uh, was suffering from cancer, thought it was a natural death. Well, that family had to fight by going to the Sydney Morning Herald and then to the state coroner to get that case investigated. So that's a mistake that's being made quite often. A second example of this is that some years ago in Lismore, a local magistrate conducted an inquest into the death of a psychiatric patient. That magistrate did his best. He found that the psychiatric nurses had done a bad job, but he found no systemic failure in the local hospital. And that, in fact, is two systemic failures. It's a systemic failure in the hospital, a New South Wales Health Inquiry found that. And secondly, it's a systemic failure within the coronial system itself.
So those are two illustrations of why country magistrates and and public servants ought not have the uh, responsibility of conducting coronial work in the country. There is also Recommendation 16 that calls for the establishment of something known as a specialist preventative death unit within the coroner's court. What would that unit do? By the way, that's one of the recommendations which has simply been noted, so it probably won't be acted upon. Tell me briefly, what what is that unit? What it's designed to do in the Victorian Coroner's Court, which is where this idea comes from, first of all, the unit analyzes incoming data. So every death is recorded and analyzed in terms of whether it fits some sort of trend or pattern. So in real time or virtually real time, you can you can try and discover whether there are patterns of fatal events happening. Secondly, it can look over a longitudinal period uh, at emerging patterns of fatal events. And thirdly, they can provide advice to coroners and also to other authorities, which may enable death preventive recommendations or policy to be developed. So those are the things that a death preventive unit or a coronial research unit could do. And given that The economic value of an Australian life is estimated to be something like $5 million. For every life you save, you're not only saving the human cost of that, but you're actually uh, saving the economy a large amount of money. So these units pay for themselves. So so the New South Wales government has just uh, announced its response just recently. Is it set in stone or might there be movement? I'm hopeful that after the election, which is in March, the government will reconsider its position. The government has known this, has known of these flaws for years, at least for five years. And these reports by the Select Committee have have also provided the empirical evidence. So I'm hoping the government won't give up on this, but, but we'll, we'll take time out once the election is over to have another look at the problem because it won't go away. It hasn't been resolved. So I think any incoming government will have to face up to the problem. Adjunct Professor Hugh Dillon, former New South Wales Deputy State Coroner, thanks for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks so much, Damien. It's good to talk to you. Gamilaroi woman Karina Hawtrey is a solicitor with the National Justice Project. It's a not-for-profit human rights legal service which focuses on both First Nations Australians and Australians living with a disability. So how does the National Justice Project regard the response of the New South Wales government to the parliamentary inquiry into the state's coronial system? Now, I should warn that this conversation includes the names of some deceased Indigenous people. I mean, I think we were disappointed in the rejection of some of the uh, key recommendations that had been made uh, out of this inquiry. Particularly, we were disappointed in the rejection of the recommendation that the coroner's court makes systemic findings to prevent deaths in custody and and other deaths uh, that the coroner's court is required to investigate. But preventing death which is caused by systemic problems or or flaws in our, say, our our health or our corrections or our our, um, policing systems. 
Exactly, yeah. Th those systems, we unfortunately, you know, see deaths happening in similar circumstances, often, you know, a couple of years later, but because, you know, it wasn't those exact circumstances, only small changes have been made, whereas the National Justice Project's view is that there needs to be systemic changes to healthcare, to the way police interact with, with particularly First Nations people and the way that the prison systems I guess, cares for, for people uh, under their duty of care so that these deaths can be further prevented. Let's talk about how the current system in New South Wales and, and elsewhere does or doesn't serve the needs of families of the deceased. And I should warn, this conversation, we will be naming some deceased Indigenous people. Can we start with a case of uh, not an Indigenous Australian man, but Jack Kikawa, uh, the National Justice Project, acted for his family. Tell me what happened to him and how, well, you would say the coronial process served his family. Jack Kikawa was a 30-year-old Maori and Cook Islander man and the coronial process looked into his death, which occurred in 2018. The inquest was held in 2019 and 2020. So Jack was uh, tasered and held down by police in inner West Sydney and then died of a heart condition with multiple contributing factors, including being held down uh, in that position, you know, caused what we call positional asphyxia, which is a sort of, I guess, a form of suffocation due to the position that you're being held in. He'd previously absconded from hospital that day uh, after being treated as an involuntary mental health inpatient, and the police were then called to bring him back, and sadly, that interaction with police has then led to his death. In that case, the family had actually quite a good experience with the New South Wales Coroner's Court. Something that we do find is that sometimes the coroner that's, that's allocated does make a really big difference to each case. So in this case, the coroner made a number of recommendations around, you know, calling an ambulance instead of sending police to, I guess, deal with someone who'd been a mental health inpatient who had um, absconded from the hospital. And as well, the, the coroner also allowed the family to perform a haka um, and sing a song, I guess, in honour of Jack and, and his memory. And so, look, our view is that that was, a, I guess, a good experience for the family in terms of being able to, to honour Jack's memory and to, I guess, share their cultural practice. Well, acknowledging that um, no system is perfect and we're dealing with very difficult circumstances, it sounds like it was a, overall a, a good outcome. So overall, a, a positive and constructive process for the family of Jack Kakawa. Now, the National Justice Project acts for another family, the family of David Dongay, uh, an Indigenous Australian man. The family is very dissatisfied with the coronial process as regards his death. David Dungay was a 26-year-old Dungari man who was a patient at Long Bay Prison in the hospital in New South Wales. He was a diabetic and so the clinical medical staff were monitoring um, David's blood sugar and some of the nurses were concerned because he was eating um, some biscuits and crackers which might have spiked his blood sugar. So those nurses then spoke to the prison guards about their concern and the guards then asked David to hand over the crackers, which he refused to do. The guards then called in the immediate action team uh, within the prison to move David to another cell so he'd be monitored by the CCTV cameras there. But several guards came into the cell, restrained David and carried him into this CCTV 
cell where they then held him down as he struggled and the nurses administered him with midazolam, which is a sedative. And David could be quite clearly heard in that that CCTV footage saying that he couldn't breathe uh, before he became unresponsive and sadly he never regained consciousness. Uh, Now, the family of, of David Dungay were quite disappointed by their experience in the New South Wales Coroner's Court. They were very disappointed in the limited recommendations that the coroner made that really didn't address the systemic problems that David faced. And and none of the officers that held David down, despite him calling out for help and calling out that he couldn't breathe, faced any disciplinary action. To be clear, the coroner made the determination that there was no grounds for a prosecution and I I believe also no grounds for disciplinary action against the corrections officers. I I think the view of the coroner was that there might have been flaws in the systems, but the individual officers were not at fault and shouldn't be subject to discipline. So the coroner's really, I guess, um, which is what we find often happens in coronial inquests rather than providing accountability for those you know, particular officers has sort of said, oh, well, look, you know, the system needs to change. And there was systemic deficiencies in the training that was given to these guards. But I think one of the challenges with the coronial process is there's then often no follow up as to whether these recommendations and, and these changes are actually made. Uh, there's very little accountability the coroner makes these recommendations and then it's completely up to Correctional Services New South Wales to improve any of the training or make these systemic changes. And very often, you know, those recommendations are just words on a page, you know, they're not actually then implemented to prevent further deaths like this happening. And finally, briefly, when it comes to the implementation of recommendations of of a coroner, is there one jurisdiction which stands out, or do some jurisdictions do a better job of this than others? There are some jurisdictions. I believe Queensland has a a system where you can then, I guess there's a bit of follow-up with uh, the agencies that are that recommendations are made to. So say a recommendation is made about the hospital, there's then a a sort of delayed follow-up with the health department in Queensland to then uh, make these, I guess, follow up these recommendations and see whether anything has been changed. Look, we'd love to see that happen around the country Um, you know, whether it's sort of six months or one year after these coronial inquests happen, following up and seeing whether these recommendations have been made or or asking, you know, what changes have been made. And and we'd love to see that communicated clearly to these families as well. You know, these families want to see change out of the deaths of of their loved ones. They they don't want to see this happen again to another First Nations family. And so I think that's a really important tool in the I guess, trust in the system, but also um, in in ensuring that this systemic discrimination or these systemic issues in in systems are changed uh, for the better so that these deaths don't happen again. Uh, Gamilaroi woman, Karina Hawtrey, solicitor with the National Justice Project. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you very much for having me, Damien. I'm Damien Carrick and you're listening to The Law Report on RN or available anywhere, anytime via the ABC Listen app. Good neighbours can be a wonderful thing, but when relationships go south, things can get very ugly very fast, even ending up in court. There needs to be a little bit of give and take between neighbours. There are some trees that are actually nicknamed neighbour haters. In any type of neighbourhood dispute, speak to your neighbours early as possible and as often as possible. You're not entitled to allow your animal to disturb neighbours. Once you've started that legal process, it can get very uncomfortable with the neighbours. 
So what are your legal rights in neighbourhood disputes around trees, pets, light and uh, my current bugbear, noise? Know your rights. Know your rights. It's 11 o'clock on uh, Saturday night and there's, uh, there's a bit of noise. Looks like a warehouse party across the road. I am over noise. I recently moved into this party-hard neighbourhood while my house is being renovated and the late-night ruckus is killing me. And it got me thinking, do any of us have a legal right to silence in the comfort of our own home? Please, please let the answer be yes. There is no right to silence in this case, unfortunately, Damien. Um, but you do have a right against sort of substantial and unreasonable interference with the use of your property. Or there's other legislation like strata title legislation that might give you added protection against noise. Delivering that bad news is Chinsia Donald. She's a partner with Lavin Lawyers in Perth. Chinsia was recently involved in a court case involving a noise complaint. Yes, we acted for the Raffles Hotel, an iconic hotel in Perth, and Mr Amon, a local resident, complained about the noise emanating from their beer garden, and he said it interrupted his ability to read, watch TV, and that it frustrated him so much he had to wear noise-cancelling headphones to sleep at night. Ultimately, the court found that there wasn't a level of unreasonable and substantial interference with Mr Ammon's rights, and in coming to that conclusion... um, they weighed up a number of factors and they understand that there needs to be a little bit of give and take between neighbours. If you're living next to a hotel, there is going to be some noise and you've got to balance those out. But ultimately, they found in favour of the Raffles Hotel. And this Raffles Hotel had been around for some 100 years, whereas the apartment block had only gone up, I think, in about 2005. Did that make a difference, the fact that, that the hotel was there first? Look, it can, um, because really people are put on notice that there's likely going to be some noise coming from that hotel, and that was a relevant factor in this case. Of course, courts and tribunals don't always go in favour of the business that's generating the noise. There was another case in Perth, I think it involved uh, Mr Cohen and the city of Perth. Tell me about that. Mr Cohen actually lived in an apartment in Perth, in the Perth CBD, and he made complaints to the City of Perth in relation to their garbage trucks. Effectively, Mr Cohen was being woken up at all hours of the night and and morning because of the large garbage trucks collecting rubbish and causing really loud crashing noises that would wake him up from his sleep. In that case, the court found that the City of Perth could have actually taken some extra measures to change the way in which they collected garbage which would have enabled Mr Cohen to get a good night's sleep and not suffer sort of mental health impacts as a result of the noise. And they effectively required the City of Perth to change the times when they would collect the rubbish so that there was sort of that give and take again between the neighbour and the City of Perth in the way they operated their garbage truck. So what happens if the noise keeping you up at night isn't generated by a business but it's coming from a fellow resident in your apartment complex. Well, there is legislation covering strata title developments which spells out in a lot of detail what you can and can't do. There was a recent dispute in Perth involving a Mr Schubert and a Ms Wang over the noise generated by her bamboo flooring. 
Because Mr Schubert complained that Miss Huang's um, new bamboo flooring that she had installed was causing a ruckus for his apartment below. And in that case, the tribunal found that Miss Huang had done all the right things in terms of installing the bamboo flooring with the best acoustic considerations. And they thought that given that she'd acted so reasonably, they weren't going to prevent her from having her bamboo flooring. Even acknowledging that, sure, there was noise. Absolutely. Again, it's that give-and-take scenario that the courts will consider. In Victoria, there was a recent case involving two residents of a complex of low-rise units. Ms Goff complained that every morning just before 7am, she'd be woken up by the sound of Ms McCaskey starting her car. Yeah, that was a fascinating case because Miss McCaskey had a four-cylinder Subaru Forester and her neighbour, uh, Miss Goff, complained that it was waking her from her slumber early in the morning and it was unreasonable interference with her sleep. Miss McCaskey took into account her neighbour's complaint and even changed the muffler on her car and had taken those reasonable steps you'd expect of a neighbour. But ultimately, the tribunal felt that it wasn't an unreasonable interference and it wasn't an unwarranted and excessive noise that would make Miss McCaskey have to take steps to park elsewhere, for example. Look, what about residential neighbours, you know, maybe in houses adjoining, who who, one neighbour is always playing loud music in the middle of the night? What can you do? Well, look, there are examples where if people are having ongoing parties and things of that nature, then, you know, some people might find the need to call the sort of local police. But if it's that general day-to-day sort of generation of noise that's causing frustration, often the first best step might be to have a conversation with the neighbour and see if you can actually sort of work out a solution yourselves, because often you can, and sometimes neighbours are just not aware of the noise impacting on their neighbours and once they're made aware, they're more than happy to sort of change the way in which they're using their property. And if you get a no from the neighbour, what's the next step? Look, if you get a no from the neighbour, there's a few options that people can look at. One is contacting the local shire or council. Quite often they're the people who actually come in and measure the noise and see whether or not it's in breach of the noise regulations. And if it is, um, then they will often take steps to work with the neighbours and and try and reach a resolution. Are there also sort of state and territory-based sort of dispute resolution services offered by, by government? Look, there are. It's worth looking at your local government websites to see whether or not they offer that service. Not all do, but some offer that service. Yeah, and if none of those work, then you need to go see a lawyer who might commence action for you. Well, that's right. Sometimes that is the step that needs to be taken and the court or the tribunal needs to sort of come to a resolution for the parties. Expensive and, uh, you know, if you go down that path, gee whiz, your relationship with your neighbour might more, will probably never recover. Well, that's the thing. I mean, once you reach that level and you've started that legal process, it can get very uncomfortable um, with the neighbours and sometimes it's very difficult to then turn around and reach a mediated dispute. And that's why I'd really sort of encourage people, if they've got this problem, to try all those sort of steps leading up to that point, just to try and see whether or not they can resolve it without needing to go to that option of getting legal advice and commencing proceedings. Door closed, but 
I can still hear it. Next time on Know Your Rights, we love them. We really do. In fact, we couldn't live without them. But when they're damaging your property... Who pays? The most common disputes are about trees that damage neighbouring properties such as interfere with pipes or pools or fences or paving and that sort of thing. Neighbour disputes about trees. That's next week in part two of our special series, Know Your Rights. That's the Law Report for this week. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and also to technical producers Richard Gervin and Brendan O'Neill. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.